Here with what God's Word reminds us of is Pastor Ed Taylor. The Word of God reminds us every time you open it of the faithfulness of God, especially in the difficulties we bring to the table. In the difficulties, God is able to redeem, and He does. And God is able to restore, and He does. And God is able to rescue, and He does. And God is able to reconcile and break down the walls of division that are so easily built up between us. God's Word brings hope. This is amazing grace. And thanks for joining us today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We've been exploring some of the many scriptures that speak of hope. And there are many because as we'll hear today, God is in the business of bringing hope. He loves to bring restoration where there was once disaster. And he can do it as his word testifies. Before getting into some of those scriptures, Pastor Ed gets things started with his own story of how God's word brings hope. I think you'll be encouraged. Take your Bibles, would you please open them to two places, Psalm 119, so Psalm 119 and Luke chapter 5. Psalm 119 is where we'll start and we'll launch off and end in Luke chapter 5 in a Bible study that I've entitled, We Hope in Your Word. Now one of the most famous or favorite passages that I have in the Bible is Joel chapter 2 verse 25, and I'll share it with you. It was given to me very early on as a new believer, and it's stuck in my heart and life ever since. God speaking through the prophet Joel says, and I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army that I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. God's promise of restoration. That is the heart of God. God loves to restore, and God loves to rebuild, and God loves to bring together those that have been separated. God loves to rescue and redeem. And when you think of Joel speaking thousands of years ago, the promise to the children of Israel that because of your hard-heartedness and because of your, your disobedience, because of your idolatry, you have found great pain and agony and consequence in your life. But the years that you've lost, God says, I am going to restore to you. I'm going to give you back what has been stolen away because of the sinfulness of your heart is a very encouraging thing to me. Because when I look back at my own personal life, my relationship with God, I see so many years that were wasted and thrown away. And I take my unbelieving years, just like the Bible would have me, all the way back to the womb. That I was born in sin, separate from God. And I walked that path until I was in my early 20s. 
And then someone, after I got saved, said, no, Ed, you got to understand. I, I know, because I used to walk around just like, man, I've wasted my life, wasted my life. I don't know if God could ever use me. And someone came alongside of me and said, no, Ed, I want to show you this, what the Bible says. The Bible says that all the years that you've wasted, God is willing to restore. And that's the work that he does. He restores. Because if God is going to do the work of restoration, then something had to be lost. And you know, for a long time, I made it a big deal in my life. I was looking forward to the day where I could come right here on this stage, stand behind this pulpit or whatever pulpit was here, and be able to say that I had served God one minute, one hour, one day, one week, one month, even one year longer than all the years I threw away to sin. And of course, tragedy struck in our lives, and that day came and went. But I can look back now, and I can say, even to you today, that as I look at my life, and I see the entirety of my life, that I've had the privilege of serving God more years than I served the evilness of this world. Why? Because I'm living proof today of Joel chapter 2 verse 25. God indeed can restore to you all that's been lost through your own sinfulness and the consequences of sin that surround you. That's the heart of God. So when we face things that are discouraging, when we look out at a world that is travailing and groaning and suffering, suffering at the result of their own sinfulness, we have to remember that we too have a disobedience about us and a hard-heartedness. We too have found ourselves wandering in an exile at times. We too have experienced judgment and loss, pain and sorrow. We too need the rescuing power of God in our lives, looking forward to what he wants to do in restoration. Because when you read through the history of Israel, what you find is, is that the history of the children of Israel, God followers, is filled with failure. That there are many mistakes made, many stumblings. That the history of the children of Israel is not a perfect one. That many, many times, corporately as a nation, they had turned their back on God. Many, many times individually they chose idolatry and sin over worship and surrender. But it's not just the children of Israel. When, when you open up the Bible and you begin to study church history, that's also very disappointing. I mean, you open up to the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit comes upon those that were waiting in one accord. And the Holy Spirit comes and empowers. And the Holy Spirit comes and strengthens. And they're excited. And the promise of God has been fulfilled. Not a chapter or two later do we read in the early church of a great disagreement and a great problem and a great division that was between the widows in the distribution of the goods that were there to help them. And you remember, that division was a racial division. Right at the get-go of the church, there was an accusation and there were finger-pointing in the church. And then you fast-forward, you read through all the book of Acts, there's all problem after problem after problem. And then you open up to the epistles and you come to 1 Corinthians and you say, what happened? How did it happen so quickly that there was division there were factions. There were people following this guy, following this guy, following this guy. There was sexual sin in the church. There was anger, frustration. What happened? And I remember taking my first class in Bible school on church history. I'm doing this because they gave me a book this thick to study. It was actually one of two volumes. That was church history one. And as I was reading through church history, every single generation of the church has faced its own challenges and its own sinful consequences 
not unlike the generation in which we live. And yet, the overarching theme of the Bible and why we have hope in the Word of God is because the Word of God reminds us every time you open it of the faithfulness of God. That even in, no, listen, especially in the difficulties we bring to the table that, that we cause, in the difficulties, God is able to redeem, and he does. And God is able to restore, and he does. And God is able to rescue, and he does. And God is able to reconcile and break down the walls of division that are so easily built up between us. God's word brings hope. The restorative, reconciling, forgiving, repairing, building up, edifying work of Jesus Christ is on every page, the heart of God. And you can say that Jesus came to earth on a rescue mission. He came right into the middle of difficulty and sin. You know, that's the heart of God to rescue from the very beginning. It didn't start with the Son of Man coming in human flesh. When you read all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, and you have the original rebellious sin of Adam and Eve, their flagrant disobedience in the face of God, the choice that they made after that sin was to try to cover it up and run away. Cover it up and run away. And what does God do? God goes after them. Because that's always been his heart to go after sinful men and sinful women to redeem and rescue us from ourselves and our own bad decisions. Jesus has come on a rescue mission, and that's what we learn as we turn to God's Word today. Would you turn over to Psalm 119 with me? Because I looked up this phrase, and of all the places that I found it, I love how it's been used in Psalm 119. Jesus came to reach everyone, and that's why the Word of God gives me hope. That Jesus came to reach the Jew and the Gentile. He, he came to reach the men and the women. He came to reach the black and the white. He came to reach the rich and the poor, the advantaged and the disadvantaged. There isn't anyone that Jesus didn't come to reach. The Bible says, the Bible says that God so loved the what? Say it out loud. God so loved the world. The world is a pretty big word. <laughs> You could replace that word world with everyone, everyone. And I know it's hard. It's hard to understand the love of God at times because it's much easier just to look out. And we have such a bad habit of labeling people so that when we place a label on someone, we don't need to treat them like a neighbor. Because and that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, here's, here, you want to summarize the whole Bible? You want to summarize God's desire of us? What did he say? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And what? Love your neighbor. Now, if you can look at someone and not see them as a neighbor, but they are outside of that category. Oh, I'll love my neighbor, but, but because of what he did, he's not my neighbor. Oh, okay. I'll love my neighbor for sure, but, but because of what she said, not my neighbor. And we are very crafty at times in labeling different behaviors and different people so that we can come out from under our responsibility to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and then allow God to love others through us. It requires an agape love, a love that's otherworldly, a love that comes from God. And you can't help, I don't know, it doesn't matter where you are in the Bible, you can't help but see the love of God. You can't help see how he doesn't quit on you, and he doesn't turn his back on us. 
And so notice in Psalm 119, turn over to verse 49. This is so good. Psalm 119 verse 49 says, Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. Our world has no hope to it. Such fleeting hope it provides. And even as we just sing, I don't know if you notice what song you just sang, but you and I, we just sang together, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Where else is there to give such a sturdy and strong hope in a culture that is seemingly hopeless? Look at verse 74. Psalm 119 verse 74 says, But those who fear you will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in your word. Look at verse 81. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. Another way of looking at verse 81 is, my, my soul is, is tired of waiting for you to work, Lord. My soul is weary not seeing the fullness of your work on the earth, God. But I hope in your word. Psalm 119, look at verse 114. In verse 114 it says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. We look out today and we see a very hostile, chaotic culture. You look out today, it doesn't take much to see people clamoring for purpose and identity and crying out for justice and expressing pain and hurt and a whole host of other things. It doesn't take long to look out that, that we live in a culture that is anti-God. And I don't just mean our culture. This is a problem around the world. Most of the world has turned their back on God. Most of the people living on the planet, of the billions and billions of people living on the planet, a very small fraction of the billions living on the planet today are surrendered to Jesus Christ. Most have chosen another way. And it's easy as we're watching the news and listening to things to throw up our hands and say, forget about it. And even in that place of going, oh, I just want the rapture to take place now. I just want to be delivered from that. That's a great desire, but it's not something that God would have us to escape. He has us in the world to infect and inject and infiltrate this world with the gospel and the good news that things can change. You know, you, th you think of how easy it is to throw our hands like, I can't believe what's happening now. But I want to remind you that Jesus Christ, when he came to earth in the womb of Mary, he entered into a very hostile, chaotic world, not unlike your own. A world filled with injustice, a world filled with pain, a world filled with hypocrisy, a world filled with people that were religious, but truly not representing the love of God. Jesus himself entered into a hostile, confused culture because every single generation has been confused and hostile toward God until they repent of their sins. Every single one. And this is how Jesus came. Jot it down. Just let it soak in. This is how it's described how he came. He said this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
even the death of the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Jesus chose the path of humility and service. That's how he chose to reach, to the point of self-sacrifice, to the point of death. And he made a conscious choice to serve those that didn't want to be served. And he made a conscious choice to love those that didn't want to be loved. He made a conscious choice to reach out to all people, not just select groups, to all outcasts. And you can say, because of his choice to reach out to the leper, his choice to reach out to women, his choice to reach out to Samaritans, his choice to reach out, and I guess you could use that category because the Bible does, to sinners is part of what got him crucified because it was so countercultural. And the church today, God is calling the church back to its roots to be countercultural, to be above the fray, to bringing people to that place of the hope that's found in Jesus Christ, the repentance of sin. You see, Jesus was not afraid to face the issues head on. You could say that Jesus jumped into the mess of sin because sin is very messy. Many of you have a testimony you could share of the mess that sin caused in your own life. It's very messy. There aren't clean lines. It isn't always so easy to discern what's going on because of the brokenness of sin. But Jesus, he stepped right into it. He jumped right into it. He didn't allow it to, he didn't allow fear to hold him back. Now, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 5, because in the mess that Jesus walked into, he walked into a mess of a particular sinner. His name is Levi. Now, you may not know him as Levi. You may know him more as Matthew, the author of the first book in the New Testament. But you see, before, before Matthew ever penned a book of the Bible, he was lost as lost could be. And he was, his life was messy. It says that he was a tax collector. I draw your attention to verse 27. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After these things, it says Jesus went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So I want you to understand something about this guy, Levi. Among the hated and among the despised people in the first century Israel were tax collectors. Not only were they despised and hated, but they were pressed out of everyday life. They were neglected and avoided and talked about and slandered and lies were said about them. And they faced great pain because of the choices that they made. You see, for a tax collector in Israel, they were known as a couple of things. They were known as traitors and thieves. They were known as a traitor because they aligned themselves with the Roman government. And because their employer was the Roman government, they were hated. You see, the Jewish people hated the Roman government. They hated the oppression. They hated being under any authority. They hated their freedoms being taken away from them. So they turned it into an anger and frustration toward the Romans. And they would often be known to, to be out of control and to cause harm and problems for the leaders of the Roman government. Levi, Matthew, he aligned himself with them. He became an agent of Rome, collecting 
the despised and ever rising taxes. You know, if you work for the IRS here today, don't tell us. Because even today, IRS agents are not high on the list of well-respected professions, even though you're doing an important job. Well, you think of the despising that might come to the IRS today. It was a hundred, maybe a thousand times worse for a guy like Matthew. He wasn't allowed to be in the temple. He wasn't allowed to be a part of worship. There's a very good chance that his family turned their back on him. There's a very good chance that he felt isolated and alone, being termed a traitor and a thief. A thief. Now, why would he be considered a thief? Well, the way taxes were collected in the first century is that the agents, like Matthew, would be given authority over an area, and they would be responsible to collect what you owed to Rome. So that you owed, a, you owed a certain sum to Rome, they would take that. But they were also given authority to get as much as they could from you. So they would take a little bit more or a lot more, depending on your personality type, above and beyond what Rome required. And they would take what was required to Rome and give it to Rome, and they would keep the rest. So you could see they weren't a very popular guy. So when it has Matthew here at his office doing his job, you have to understand that his job was aligned with robbers, murderers, tax collectors, that's culturally, and then from the religious side of things, they were just worthless, irredeemable sinners. And that was their perspective. Just hopeless. No hope for Matthew. He has chosen his path in life. He's turned against us. He's aligned himself with the government. He's, he's hopeless. Robbers, murderers, tax collectors. But you see, Jesus saw him sitting at the tax office, verse 27, and he spoke to him and he said to him, follow me. The greatest thing that ever happened to Matthew in his life I don't want you to miss this, okay? This is an application for us to grow in. The greatest thing that happened to Matthew in his life happened at the office. It happened at work. See, many times the way that we're kind of ingrained is you know, really don't like work and you're tired of work and it's oppressive and it's hard. You don't get paid enough and you're just so upset about work. But God is ready to use you at work. And maybe not for you, but for someone else, the greatest day of their life is going to happen in your office. Your office. And you may be a part of it. I remember in, as a new believer when I was working, I worked in an ambulance industry for many years, and, and I worked as a dispatcher. So I was in the main office, and I interfaced with everyone in the company because they all had to come to the office, always come into the office, getting their slips and getting their info. and coming. They were always there. So I got to interface with all of them. Not only that, we were all young back then, and we spent a lot of time together partying. So we would spend a lot of time after work, before work, on the weekends, on our vacations, doing a lot of stuff together, and then I got saved. And things changed for me. Didn't change for everyone else, but they changed for me. My life radically changed. You're listening to Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. We'll hear more of his story and how God used him next time. In the meantime, be open to God using you to bring the hope of the gospel in the lives of those you work with. It's so greatly needed today and readily available to any who call on the Lord. Today's message is aptly titled, We Hope in Your Word. Hear it again at AboundingGraceRadio.com. More and more people these days are accessing our teachings through our app, 
Not only is it really convenient, but it's easy, too. You can download that right now. Search for Calvary Aurora and start listening to Pastor Ed Taylor through your mobile devices. You can also watch the live stream from Calvary Church in Aurora through that app. These are difficult, challenging times we're living in, and we'd like to offer you a book that can be a real encouragement. It's Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. You might think of lament as how we bring our sorrow to God, but this is often a neglected part of the Christian experience. Learn how to vocalize your pain and wrestle with sorrow as you move toward deeper worship and trust in God. Author Mark Rogop explores the Bible through the Psalms and Lamentations, inviting you to tap into God's grace and mercy that He offers in the darkest moment of your life. We'll send you a copy with our thanks for a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. Reach us toll-free at 877-30-GRACE. Again, the number is 877-30-GRACE. Please remember us in your prayers and giving to the Lord as you're able. People need to hear about God's abounding grace right now. And with your help, we can make that possible. You can make a secure donation online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. We'll return to our series, Hope is Contagious, next time on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. May God richly bless you with His abounding grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado.